Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode 17, June 2019. Vocal Authority, a conversation with Rena Cook. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast, a service of paulmeyer.com, where you'll find all my books, ebooks, and services for spoken word training and coaching. Since the last podcast, we've launched a new app. It's an Android version of my very popular interactive IPA charts. So if you're an Android user and are into phonetics and would like to hear me pronounce and explain every symbol of the international phonetic alphabet, this is the app for you. I've had an Apple version available for some time, so I'm very pleased to be able to include you Android users. Just search the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store for interactive IPA charts, or go to my website. We've recently started a recurring feature on these podcasts. Guess that accent. Little quiz. Sorry, no prizes. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Listen. Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily in an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. If you guessed Oklahoma, well done. It was Oklahoma 7 from Tulsa, Oklahoma, submitted by today's guest, Rena Cook when she was an active associate editor of IDEA. To hear the whole recording, search for Oklahoma 7 at dialectsarchive.com, the home of the International Dialects of English Archive, IDEA. And now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? Well, here's the story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. Rena Cook and I have been friends and colleagues for many years. In the last few years, Rena has been coaching corporate clients, especially, making a special practice of helping professional women with their public speaking needs. She has a very successful book out, Power Without Press, The Foundation of Authentic Communication. I've been looking forward very much to talking with Rena. Rena, I asked you to send me some YouTube clips of good models of professional women speakers that uh, could kick off our conversation about voice and speech and professional women. And you uh, sent me four, Jessica Lang, Meryl Streep, Oprah, and uh, Kerry Washington. Let's listen first to a little bit of Jessica Lang. I got out here and we started shooting and I started reading everything that there was and watching her interviews and learning about her. And it was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, suddenly this whole world opened up. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. There is so much to do with this character. And it turned out, I mean, there was. There, it was just endless. Every, every scene ended up being, like, exciting. Point out to us what you admire in Jessica Lang as a good model for any professional woman. Well, it's so clear 
and so effortless. It appears that she is just totally being authentic. She's just speaking from her heart. And this, the sound, the words, what she's trying to communicate is so clear and so effortless. And there's nothing in the sound that detracts or distances us from what it is that she has to say. Those are the qualities we admire, aren't they? Exactly. Nothing in the body language, nothing in the quality, nothing in the way she carries her breath. It all just works organically for her and gives the impression that she's putting forth no effort at all. And yet every word is clear and her heart is fully in the message. So while it is completely professional, completely trained, poised, no one could possibly accuse her of being elitist or overly or studied or, 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 or posh. The, or posh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that's, that's what a lot of the women who come to me for help, they're afraid that if they study, they will sound posh or affected. And so I want to reassure them that you can have studied and be polished, but not be inauthentic or in any way affected. And so I use uh, Jessica Lang and others as an example of this is a, a trained voice who maintains her complete authenticity. Do you ever say that, well, there will be a point when you're self-conscious because you're changing things, you're modifying, you're modifying your speech. There will be a period where you go through... Uh, a little bit self-conscious and thinking, will my friends think I'm putting on a voice? Exactly. And, and and we do that in a tone of play. You know, this is just an exploration and it will feel awkward and it will feel maybe a little artificial, but trust the process. Your muscles are learning to do something new, replacing old habits, and it's going to sound like that until it becomes comfortable. And then we abandon the work, you know, as you do, and have them move a little or dance a little or do a silly little improv and then just speak. Mm-hmm. And the skills that you've been working on settle in, and then you sound like yourself again, only a better version. Just as we tell an actor that if you're thinking about the dialect that's coming out of your mouth while you're on stage, then that's what we will listen to. So that cannot possibly be what you're thinking about when you're delivering your lines in performance. Mm -hmm. Meryl Streep, we find her in a heightened situation. Deborah Sampson was the first woman to take a bullet for our country. She served disguised as a man in George Washington's Continental Army. And she fought to defend a document that didn't fully defend her. All men are created equal, it read. No mention of women. So I guess the same points about Meryl Streep that you made about Jessica Lange. No no being in her way, no training mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. face. And, and the thing that I that I use with this one when I'm coaching women running for office is to listen to that speech, how you can be heightened, you can rally the crowd in a way that does not have to be screechy or barky or or those sounds that for 50% of the population are like fingernails on a blackboard. 
that you can keep your grounded and centered. You can be loud and strong and not go into a place where you're abrasive or shouting at us. Mm -hmm. So it's not at all off-putting, but is instead really inspiring. And you are telling your message clearly. We get all the facts. You know, while you were saying that, Rena, I flashed on Margaret Thatcher and her training. Do you remember? Yes, I do. I do. And I use that as an example of what her voice was like when she started her career. And it was high and harpy-like. And she got a lot of feedback for that. And she studied and kind of modulated her pitch and warmed up her sound so that she became more authoritative through her career. And, of course, Meryl played Maggie Thatcher, so... Yes, <laughs> and did it brilliantly. Oh, my gosh. And you know, when I conjure up, when I bring Margaret Thatcher to mind, I'm actually seeing Meryl Streep as Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a more recent memory now. And exactly. uh, she was just so poignant and so clear as if she was channeling the spirit of the woman. Before we go on to a little bit of Oprah Winfrey, it's kind of a truism that 90% of the voiceover work, particularly in the theatrical trailer world, go to men. It's yes. very rare for a woman to be asked to voice a theatrical trailer. You That's know, we, right. We have the inner world where, you know, right. the, the big, dark, <laughs> deep brown voice. Uh -huh. uh, and, and we associate authority with, with depth. How do you address that with your female clients? The notion that depth is required. Yeah, I've written several articles about this, and I feel very strongly that it's not about the pitch of the voice. Because if I lower my voice to find my lower pitches, I am being, first of all, physically taxing on my voice by lowering the larynx. And I'm also kind of trapped in that place where I can't be expressive and use more flexibility in my sound. Um, it's really about resonance. For example, I and can, can and use... you can be resonant at a higher pitch. Absolutely. My optimum pitch, if I close my resonance, is like right about here. Hi, my name is Rena, and I have a little girl voice. But if I open my resonators, lift my soft palate, relax the back of my tongue, I take on a more womanly sound, and I haven't changed my pitch. And so it's a mistake for those women and men who think that they, they must deepen their voices. You know, we hear a lot of men speaking below their natural register. Right, uh, exactly. And perhaps that much discussed thing of vocal fry, particularly oh, right, in, in right. women, is mm -hmm. perhaps a misguided attempt to deepen the voice, to gain some sort of authenticity or, or, or credibility. Exactly. And, and it, but it robs the, the voice of the, of the natural resonance. It absolutely does. It, it's a trap and kind of keeps you in this little box that is not expressive, not authentic, not authoritative, and really harmful for the voice. Let's listen to little Oprah, who has a deeper voice naturally. That's her natural register. I told you when I finished that, that interview, I said, I've only interviewed another one other person in my life that I felt this great about, and that was Sidney Poitier. So my two favorite interviews of all time... Sidney Poitier, Selma Hayek. What do you think of Oprah? 
Oprah has so much gravitas in her sound, and and you're right when you point out that she has a naturally low pitch or a low register, but there is so much melody within that, and so much using of the language to draw us into her message. She's so compelling, so she uses her natural pitch range and augments it with pitch variety, with inflection with using the language in a way that, well, as I said, draws us in and forces us to listen. It drives me crazy when I hear people who are, you know, you hear some newscasters who, who get on a pitch and then today in Washington such and such happened and the weather's going to be fine and and it's, and, and they're very, perhaps only vary the pitch when they come to the very end of the sentence. Uh-huh. And then they drop it down. <laughs> exactly. That's one of the major lessons that I teach, particularly when I'm working with women, is how to find inflection, natural, authentic melody of the spoken word. Do you find some of your women clients avoid the high registers because it's too feminine or too like a, the the feminine stereotype of yesteryear? I, I think so. I think also many have received feedback about their upper pitches. And, and, and I think anatomically, we're kind of hardwired not to enjoy higher pitches, particularly if they're strident. If they're not open and relaxed, they do assault our ears. So it's not just a cultural thing. It's also a, an acoustic thing, an anatomical acoustic response. And if we've received feedback that that's uncomfortable or not a, a flattering or authoritative sound, then we, we work against that. I'm just going to keep my voice down so that I mm-hmm. never go up. And so, yes, I have to reintroduce the fact that you have middle and even upper range pitches at your disposal. Of course, the Brits understand that. You know, they fully use much more of their pitch range than Americans do. Yet when we speak general American, we think we need to flatten it out on the bottom and just speak on one or two notes all the time. And that's the way we have authority. Well, no, it's not. People stop listening if we get trapped in the same pitch and in the same inflection pattern for more than one sentence. If the second sentence sounds the same as the first, we're done. It's like you've delivered what they're expected to hear next. And when you when you confound the expectation, of course, the audience sits up. Exactly. Whenever you change, the audience goes, what? <laughs> that was interesting. Changes of pitch, changes of tempo, changes of volume. Exactly. Changes of phrase length. You know, I'm sure with your political clients, I don't know if you get into script development with them. Uh, Yes, I do. Well, then I'm -hmm. I'm sure you have dealt with the effectiveness of a suddenly short phrase following a much longer one. Exactly. Kerry Washington, up next, the fourth of your examples. There was this moment, I guess Viola has this belief that Olivia Pope walks very fast. Mm-hmm. And she does. Olivia Pope has like a walk. It's a very powerful kind of walk. And so we were doing one scene where we were walking together and I was like out of breath trying to keep up with her. I was like, what are you doing? She was like, I got to keep up with you. So she was like speeding down the street and I'm dying to catch up with her just because she was afraid of my walk. The thing that I like so much about Carrie is when she, 
she's she's got a warmth to her sound. She makes big space in her mouth. You know, she has a large mouth and it's and she just wraps it around language and she's not afraid to use her lips in a really expressive way. And so I use her for that example. Most of us are afraid to really use our lips for fear we're going to look like wide mouth frog, you know, like a, a cartoon or exaggeration. But people who really embrace the fact that they have lips and use them to wrap around sound, it's so engaging. It is. I'm meeting with a Colombian client in a few hours and the thing I love working with my Colombian client is that she has a, a most wonderfully expressive mouth movement in her native Spanish. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the tragedy is that to uh, it's, it's accent modification that we're doing. She wants more American sound to her voice to get more credibility. She sees mm-hmm. she wants. But it's a bit of a tragedy that she feels that and she really does have to abandon that tremendous uh, variety of mouth movement that comes mm-hmm. naturally in her Spanish mm-hmm. to emulate the sort of ventriloquist style that is the uh, the mainstream of American English. You know, you you watch a newscaster and you you can see the lips moving a little bit, but there but is there much. is there's really no change from lip round to lip spread, and uh-huh. it's kind of a ventriloquism act, isn't it? Yes, it is. And so the idea that you can achieve extra interest and vividness by changing lip shape is news to many of our clients, right? Absolutely. It's like earth shattering when I get them to engage their mouth, open their mouth, engage their lips, relax their tongue. Um, Sometimes there's tears, you know, when that happens and they hear their authentic voice. I'm coaching a young woman from Kenya who feels that her dialect gets in the way. Well, as I listen to her, her dialect is beautiful. Her English is so clear. It's the fact that she's not opening her mouth and powering her voice. It's it's breathy and soft. It's not the dialect at all. And when I helped her find that big, beautiful, warm sound that is naturally her, she wept the first time she heard it. Yes, a lot of the time people uh, from other countries who come to me for for accent reduction, uh, so-called, mm-hmm. we end up not working on American accent training at all, mm-hmm. but making their accent uh, an asset and not a liability. Exactly. Clarifying it. I try to get them to talk in terms of clarification. Don't lose your dialect. That is half of your charm. What do you say to your Southern women clients, maybe attorneys who feel that their Southern accent is a professional hindrance? We work with specifically with the vowels, and I just show them how the shape of their mouth is what leads them into those dialect shifts that are Southern that we had you know, we hear as Southern. And if they make a little bit more space, like a little bit more um, vertical space as opposed to horizontal space in the mouth, the vowel will write itself. So you you won't coach someone who says final time into final time? Well, we, we talk about the diphthong and what she does with the diphthong, fa, and final. 
and we practice that in the mouth, certainly. But if you are making space and easily changing the shape of the mouth, then the vowels write themselves. Um, because when we're, when we're speaking in the heat of the moment, we don't think sound to sound. And, uh, but we can remember that I need to make this shape and I need to make shapes available as I'm speaking and they kind of automatically flow to the right shape and space. So let's listen to you from your TED talk. Oh, okay. Wonderful piece, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. I felt so honored to have that opportunity. Power Without Press, the Foundation of Authentic Communication by Rena Cook. Whenever you are communicating, just allow your belly to release when you need to take in a breath, and the breath will be down there. And I just want you to spend a few seconds breathing deeper, slower, quieter, calmer. Deeper, slower, quieter, calmer. Great message and delivered in a style that exemplifies the points you're making. Thank you. That is the foundation of everything that I teach to both genders, actually. It's the idea of where the energy is in your body as you're speaking. If you align your body in a natural and relaxed way and you're breathing deeply and you are making space in your mouth, your communication will be authoritative, it will be authentic, and you are setting up your body to be receptive to what's coming at you. Power without press is a state of energy and it's a state of body. And if your energy and your breath is low and your body, your head and neck are aligned and your chin is parallel to the floor, you will be authoritative and authentic without pushing your energy at your listeners. The person who is authentic, present, who owns the room is someone who is available to the participants in the room. Is your advice about effective, persuasive, engaging, vivid use of the voice all that different for your men, from Um, from your women clients? That's a really good question, and I gave that uh, uh, some thought before we got together today. And the answer is, of course, men and women are anatomically vocally different. But when I'm dealing with individual clients of either gender, I just look at what their specific issue is and work from that. So the approach is different for every individual, not necessarily between men and women. Got it. Voice work is an easy sell to actors. Um, yeah. And, men, and, and it's a lifelong study for actors, of course. Mm-hmm. Your clients, you might meet with them, if you're lucky, five or six times, maybe mm-hmm. more. So mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's an easy sell to actors, but most others don't even know that someone like you exists. So that's right. How do you actually get them to knock on your door? Well, I'm out and about all the time. I network. Uh, so when I give my sixty second pitch, I model what it is that I teach. 
I do lunch and learns. I speak to associations, uh, sometimes for free, sometimes for a small fee. But people don't know they need me until they hear me talk about what I do. And if I can get them to do a few of the exercises with me and they hear and feel the change, then they're like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that I needed this. I had no idea that someone like you exists. How do you overcome the objection in your clients that changing their vocal style will change their identity, something that crops up time and again Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. with my clients? Well, you reassure them that I'm not changing who you are or how you essentially sound. I want to help you be the best version of you possible. It's nice to point out, isn't it, that we all have many, many voices within us. We all, we all code shift. We all have, exactly. we all have different versions of ourselves. And when we are at our most fluent, most passionate, the the best voice comes out. That's right. And uh, we're often unaware of it. And then we talk about it in a session. You know, do you sound different when you're talking to your children? Well, yes. Do you have a different voice when you're talking to your husband? When you're disagreeing with your husband or your wife? When you're in a sales meeting? And we just go through the different roles that we play and that we vocally assume and what does your leadership voice need to have that it currently doesn't have or your sales voice you know if you're too salesy and i get a lot of insurance salesmen who want to do work and of course they're just too salesy and that turns people off so the sales technique that i teach is just very relaxed very comfortable very authentic totally not salesy at all. Yeah. Um, Chris, when Chris, I'm, sorry, I was just going to jump in and uh-huh, re- reminded me of something that uh, Kristen Linklater said in last month's podcast. We were talking about uh, politicians and why do we turn them, turn them off sometimes? Why do they not seem to be telling the truth? It's the same thing with, with salespeople. When they mm-hmm. are authentic and possessed mm-hmm. of their truth and are talking to you, not at you, mm-hmm then they'll sound like a real human being. Exactly. Everybody can do it. They just need to experience how to do it. What needs to change in your body, in your breath, in the shape of your mouth that will help you sound more like yourself? Mm -hmm. I like to talk about the generosity of spirit that comes with taking a lot of breath and using a lot of breath. A lot of people are parsimonious with their with their breath. They don't uh-huh. give, give a lot of breath, a lot of spirit. You know, it's interesting that inspiration and spirit and, uh, and respiration, they all have spirit in Absolutely. them, don't they? Yes, yes. And that's not uh, an accident. Um, when we are giving and receiving breath, we are giving and receiving spirit, the spirit of our hearts or of our souls. And that's ultimately what people want. And when people buy from a salesperson, they are buying from that soul, from that spirit. That's what sells them and allows them to trust that placing my money in your hands or buying this product or this service is the right decision because you have shared your spirit your soul with me. And you know, I was about to ask you about 
changes in speech fashion over the decades and the centuries, but I'm beginning to think that there might be a fundamental universal constant in what we value in a voice. What what the ideal 17th century voice and speech did is not so very different from an authentic, vivid 21st century voice does. Do you think fashions have changed significantly? Or or is there one universal constant that is kind of true for all time? That's really a good question. And as I'm thinking about it, styles and aesthetics have changed. What we expect from performers, from the art, I think has radically changed. However, through history, the art and the voices and the speakers that we most admired and who are the most successful are the ones who bring themselves fully and clearly to the communication moment. And that's got to never change, has it? And that, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying and what I'm hearing in you as well. As aesthetics may change in what we demand from screen actors, from stage actors, um, from politicians. But when they do strike us as highly effective and highly believable, they're bringing that quality of spirit and breath and authenticity to the moment. Rena, I wonder why it is that public speaking, elocution, as it used to be called, has so completely disappeared from education, perhaps even from the value system that we embrace. I'm thinking back to the King's speech when we have, when we saw Lionel Logue teaching uh, George the Sixth, Colin Firth, to overcome his nervous stammer, but doing so much more than simply eliminating his stammer. I'm not sure I know why it has. I've observed that it has, and it's such a tragic loss. I don't know. For a while, it didn't seem important. Public speaking, elocution didn't seem to be important. And now we recognize, since we've stopped talking, <laughs> that how important it is. And every person who uses their voice at all is a public speaker. And if you absolutely don't know how to use the voice, you're not going to ultimately be successful either in work or in communications within families and social circles. So I know that it's starting to make a comeback. And uh, I don't know, did, did it ever go out of fashion in British education? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I When I was in drama school and training for the stage. My teachers were just in the post-elocution period. Their teachers were firmly embracing of the term. But by the time I came to train, the word elocution smacked of falseness, social divisions, and all of that kind of thing. So in the, in the rush to embrace the validity and the legitimacy of every speaker, of every point of view, I think we lost our admiration of good speaking, effective speech. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. in order to not privilege a particular style of speech, we just gave up teaching speech altogether. Yeah, that makes total sense to me, Paul. 
um, I think that you're right that you've stumbled on something there that's that now people are discovering that there's something really quite magical in someone who knows how to use the voice. I mean, you so, and I know, of course, that the spoken word is magic. It does something that reading silently to oneself can never achieve. I mean, we can get the intellectual content off the mm -hmm. page, mm -hmm. and perhaps we can hear the writer's voice in our own head as we read mm -hmm. his or her speech. But when you come to voice something, be it a blessing, be it a curse, be it be it an oath, we still have at the back of our minds that the spoken word, as it did in the beginning, was the word that it was an oral act that created the universe mm -hmm. in a sense in the in the sense of Genesis. Mm -hmm. So we we do believe in the efficacy and the magic of the spoken word, but yet our education and our training doesn't seem to reflect that ancient ancient belief. Mm -hmm. That's very true, uh, and and of course now we know that neurologically we receive double information when we can hear the inflection in the voice, we hear the tune, we hear the embrace of words, we gather more meaning. And our souls take it in. The vibrations of the human voice are are very pleasing and they go through our body. A good voice certainly is a pleasant experience sensation and a, a badly formed voice can be an unpleasant sensation that human voice sounds pierce our bodies in pleasurable or not pleasurable ways well that seems a fitting note to end on doesn't it i guess it does <laughs> <laughs> you mean we've we've talked about all we need to talk about, Paul? You and I could go on for a very long time. Um, we could indeed. And and I could just listen to you. Um, I love uh, working with accents for the stage and screen. Your wonderful book, because I get to listen to you, and I tell my students, uh, I know him. <laughs> He's my friend. Well, thank, thank you for that lovely plug. <laughs> Well, it's it's a remarkable book, and I continue to use it. And I love your book, and I'm I wish you all the best with your practice and with the sales of your wonderful book. And uh, we'll talk again soon. I'm sure. Oh, thank you, thank you so much for speaking with me today and letting me share my passions and uh, talk about the work because it's just the most exciting thing ever in my life is empowering people to speak their truth clearly. And thanks to you for joining Rena Cook and me, Paul Meyer. Join me next time when my guests will be Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. We'll be talking about that mysterious territory that lies on the border between speaking and singing. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs> <laughs>